Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. This will have to do for now. Thank you, Yonday. Biggest day of your life. What is the biggest day of your life? Some of you might say um, your wedding day is the biggest day of your life. Some of you might think that uh, retirement day is the biggest day of your life. Uh, We're celebrating a lot of graduations, graduation from high school, graduation from college. Some of you might think that that's one of, if not the biggest day in your life. I would suggest to you today that um, none of those is actually the biggest day of your life. The biggest day of your life is actually future. It's coming for all of us. And it's called the day of judgment. The day of judgment. That's the biggest day of your life. And when we hear that phrase, day of judgment, very often a very common response to that is to be a little bit apprehensive, feel a little bit fearful about that. You know, one of the most uh, famous quotes that we hear, um, some words spoken by Franklin Delano Roosevelt many years ago where he said that um, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Uh, I, I would like to correct that. Really the only thing, ultimately, when we consider all things from a broad perspective of what is true, the most important thing that you need to fear is the day of judgment. (laughs) And that's what we're talking about here today. That's what John is talking about in this passage in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. What we're doing is going through this book, just one passage at a time, and by the grace of God, making our way through this. We're finishing chapter 4, and then we just have chapter 5, and we'll be done with uh, 1 John. But this is how we do this. We just kind of go through this book, and whatever the topic is in the next passage, that's what I preach on. So that's why we're preaching about the Day of Judgment, because that's what's mentioned here in this passage. And John is giving us some direction about what that day is like and how we can be prepared for it and how we can know that there is an opportunity to escape the judgment of God on that last day. So, let's read this. 1 John 4, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, verses 13 through 21. 1 John 4, beginning with verse 13. It says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God, we pray, please, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The biggest day of your life, the day of judgment. I want to think about this today from three perspectives, three angles. The first is this. I want to show you from this text that it is natural to have a response of fear when we think about the day of judgment. You uh, saw the day of judgment mentioned there in verse 17 um, of the passage. John says, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Now, this is not a particularly popular topic. Uh, it's an uncomfortable thing to consider. Uh, but it is something that the Bible addresses repeatedly. We can look through the Scripture and see the Day of Judgment mentioned by many different writers of the Scriptures. So, for instance, uh, Peter says this, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the Day of Judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We see what Paul has to say here in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. We see that even Jesus talks about the day of judgment. I tell you, he says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And on and on we could go. The, the day of judgment is this time that we will all face when we will have to face God and give an account for everything we've done and everything we've said in our lives. And so that's why it shouldn't surprise us too much to see where John goes with this. If you look to verse 18, he begins talking about fear. He talks about the day of judgment in verse 17, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So you might think, well, why is he jumping to this notion of fear? Well, it's because he just talked about the day of judgment. And John knows that when you think about the day of judgment, a natural response is some measure of fear. Nobody likes to be examined. I think a lot of us don't even like taking exams in school. Uh, many of us don't like um, taking driving tests. Uh, much less do we like to think of our entire lives being exposed and examined when we think of that, we shudder with fear. But John goes on here to even further elaborate on what it is that we fear in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And then he says this, for fear has to do with punishment. And so this is getting to the root of what it is we fear and dread about the day of judgment, and that is that we're afraid that we're going to be punished. And the reason that we're afraid we're going to be punished is because we know at some gut level, intuitive level, that we deserve to be punished on the day of judgment. We all know our lives better than most people. We know the promises that we haven't kept. We know the grudges that we haven't been willing to let go. We know the people that we have cut out of our lives. We know the, the apathy that we have had toward the poor and the oppressed, sometimes even the contempt that we have had for them. We know the self-righteousness self -righteous, self we've harbor, 
harbored in our hearts. We know the, the pride that we have held on to. We know how we have allowed our Bibles to languish on the shelves in our home. We know how infrequently we've been on our knees in prayer. We know about the sexual perversities in our private life, and they pile up as we think and reflect on our lives, and we get afraid when we think of the day of judgment because we know we deserve to be punished. It's natural to fear the day of judgment. The Bible is clear it's coming, and what John is telling us here is that fear is a natural response and it has to do with punishment. Now let me shift gears here and say something that uh, might surprise you a little bit, and it's this. I want you to understand that it is good that there is a day of judgment coming. That is a good thing. It is good that there is a day coming when evil and wickedness will be punished. That's a good thing. That, that might surprise you that I'm saying that. That's a good thing. The reason it's a good thing is, friends, you do not want to live in a world where there are no consequences for evil behavior. You don't want to live in that kind of world where people can just do whatever they want and get away with it and not have to worry about consequences. I mean, just think of what it would be like in a household if the children thought there were no consequences for anything that they did. If they thought they would never be punished for anything they did, what would that household look like? Think of a city or a community where the citizens felt like there would be no consequences for what they did, no punishment for anything that they did. What would that look like? I mean, you see that sometimes when you see a riot break out, and it's like the rule of law just fails for a time, and people just go crazy, and it's chaos, and they do whatever they want, and it's like hell on earth when you see that. That's what life is like when there's no fear of punishment. There's a, a TV show years ago called Breaking Bad um, that maybe some of you have seen, and um, the show is about a man who is a high school science teacher, and he gets caught up in the drug culture, and he gets tangled up in that, and the show just shows how he unravels and spirals downward and gets increasingly wicked and moral and reprehensible in his character and behavior. And the creator of the show was talking about the philosophy behind the show, the, the reason why he wrote it this way and what he was trying to show. And, and he said this, he said, it seems like in the human spirit there is a desire for wrongdoers to be punished. He said he wanted to show that actions have consequences. He, 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 said, he even used this term. He said, it seems like there's a need for some kind of biblical atonement or justice for the behavior that people engage in in this life. That's what that show was about, a desire to see wrongdoers punished. And I think all of us can identify with that. When we see the worst of people in the history of the world, we want them punished. We shudder to think that the Adolf Hitlers and um, the mass murderers of the world will just go unpunished with no consequences. We don't like a world like that, and we shouldn't like a world like that. And what John is telling us is there is a day of judgment when punishment will be given to wrongdoers. I mean, just thinking further about this, there's a guy named um, David Berlinski who wrote a book called The Devil's Delusion. And um, <clears throat> the guy's not even a Christian, but he was reflecting on what it's like 
in the world when people lose a sense that God is watching them. And he's talking about the 20th century in particular as we've kind of moved into a, a, an increasingly secular kind of worldview, at least in Europe and North America, where people have just um, you know, displaced God from their thinking. And people don't think there's a God. And so what Berlinski shows in this book is how people have acted in that environment. And he talks about um, Chairman Mao in China, for instance. Under his reign, 40 million people died. He talks about um, Stalin in the Soviet Union, where 20 million people died. He talks about World War II, largely because of the influence of Adolf Hitler, where 55 million people died. And Berlinski says this, he says, very few of those carrying out the horrors of the 20th century worried over much that God was watching what they were doing. That, after all, is the meaning of a secular society. God's not watching. I don't have to give an account for my life. There are no consequences for my behavior. And the natural outworking of that is to just do whatever you want. So to think of a day of judgment where there's some fear of what's going to happen on that day of judgment and where we know that the day of judgment is a time when evildoers will be punished, overall, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But what John is saying here, though, is something that's a little bit different for the Christian because John and God don't want us as Christians to be living our lives with a constant dread and fear of punishment on the judgment day. And so if you look at verse 18, uh, again, no notice what John is saying here. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what John is saying is there is a way to not live your life in fear, particularly for the Christian, so that leads us to the second point, which is this, that salvation is offered to you and me for the day of judgment, that there is an offer to you and me of salvation. Now, notice the tension here. It's very interesting how John is talking about the day of judgment, and we think of the day of judgment as this day of, of wrath and punishment. But notice that John is also just as much talking about God being a God of love. So verse 16, for instance, he says, We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Remember, he said that last week, a few verses earlier. He repeats it again here. God is love. God is love. And yet there's this day of judgment. And so, for many of us, we have trouble kind of wrestling with that. Well, how is it, you know, we think if God is a God of love, certainly He's not going to judge anybody. Or if God is going to judge people, certainly He can't be a God of love. But the Bible has no problems. John and the writers of the Bible have no problem whatsoever holding together the tension of those two things. God is a God of wrath, and He's a God of love. There is a day of judgment, and yet God is a God of mercy and grace. And these things are to be held together in tension in our minds as we read the scriptures, and the tension is here for us. We're thinking here today about God's holiness. God is holy. He is righteous. He is set apart. He is different. He cannot be in the presence of sin and wickedness. He has to, in order to maintain his holiness, 
judge what is not holy. If he didn't do that, he wouldn't be holy. And yet at the same time, we see that God is a God of love. So how is this reconciled? And we see it in verse 14. Here's how God reconciles this. He says, John says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, love as a motivation for this isn't stated in this verse, but if you just back up to verse 9, you'll see that that John says this. Uh, Verse 9 in chapter 4, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world. So I've been telling you, John's been, he repeats himself a lot. And sometimes we have to piece certain verses together to get the full picture. So it's love that causes God to send his son. And in verse 14, we see that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. And that's a very important word, isn't it? Savior. God sent Jesus to be a savior. The first question we should ask when you see the word savior, and it's such a commonly used word, we probably don't even think about it that much. But we've got to ask ourselves, What is it that Jesus is saving us from? Why is he called a savior? Why is that important? What do we need to be saved from? And what is Jesus saving us from? And the answer is the wrath of God and the anger of God that will be meted out to evildoers on the day of judgment. That's what Jesus has saved us from. Now, you hear that, and maybe it's like, yeah, I know, I know, I've heard that before. You say that every Sunday. But, you know, there are times in history where the Spirit of God gets poured out, and that becomes profoundly meaningful to people. I'm reading a book called McShane's Dundee. It's about the revival that broke out in Dundee, Scotland in 1839. The Spirit of God breaks out in this working-class city. And there's a church called St. Peter's. And suddenly people are flooding to this church to hear the gospel. And the room is so full of people, the preacher can barely make it from the back of the room to the pulpit. He's got to fight his way through the people to make it to the pulpit. There's so many people longing to hear the gospel, that they're turning away hundreds of people at the door. Sorry, no room. People who are enabled to come in and get a seat, they're here and they're listening, and the description that is given over and over again about the attitude of the people is that they're bathed in tears. They're weeping. They're wailing throughout the whole service. When the service is over, hundreds of people are waiting around because they want to talk more about the gospel. And and here is what it was that was so concerning to them. Here's what it was that was making them weep and cry. And that is they felt like they were on the brink of hell. They felt like they were going to receive the wrath of God on the day of judgment. They were convicted of their sin and they had come to a place where they thought there is no hope for me and I am going to be in torment forever. That's what was causing their tears. 
And yet the pastors at St. Peter's would get up and they would talk about what Jesus did. And they would say, Jesus Christ came and he laid down his life and he shed his blood. And he took that punishment that you're afraid you're going to get. He took it upon himself. That when he shed his blood, he propitiated for your sins. What we learned last week in chapter 4, verse 10. He turned away the wrath of God. He took God's judgment upon him so that you don't have to face it. That's what was proclaimed. And people were, were ecstatic at hearing these things. So many people came to faith because they saw Jesus as so supremely desirable in the face of a coming day of judgment. And, and I am convinced, friends, that, that that is one reason why in our particular day and age that Jesus seems to be of so little interest to people, that people are so generally apathetic about a Savior. It's because they don't think they have anything to be saved from. They're not worried about a day of judgment. They don't believe in a wrath of God. They think they can do whatever they want, and they're going to get away with it. They don't long for a Savior. Friends, when's the last time you, you just poured out your heart in thanksgiving to God? Thank you for saving me from the day of judgment. Thank you so much for propitiating the wrath of God for me. I mean, we all have problems. We all have issues. We all have difficulties, and I don't want to minimize those. But knowing that the wrath of God has been turned away ought to put us in a good mood, generally speaking. Everything else kind of pales in comparison to the good news of what Jesus has done to save us from the day of judgment. And so that's why we read further here. We're really kind of camping out here in verse 18, I know. But um, <clears throat> that's why John goes on and he says there is no fear in love. This should be the result of, of this love. He, he calls it a perfect love in verse 18. This perfect love, referring to the love of God for us in Christ, where God pursued us in Christ, where God sacrificed himself for us in Christ, where God did everything necessary to secure our eternal life in Christ, that's the perfect love. And the result of receiving and knowing a perfect love is that fear is cast out. Fear has to do with punishment. But when you're trusting in Jesus, you're not afraid of punishment anymore. And you rejoice. I mean, a lot of Christians, though, still, still are you know, living with a kind of fear of God's, God's punishment. I mean, maybe you've seen a, you've seen a dog that has um, come from an abusive home, and, and you kind of try to approach the dog, but the dog kind of always kind of goes away from you. You know, you can't get close to the dog. And, and the reason why is because the dog has had a life of being punished. And the dog feels like if it draws near to you that you're going to punish it. So it doesn't want to come near to you. Sometimes Christians live that way. It's like, I don't want to go to God. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to pray. I don't want to read the word. Because I'm afraid God's going to punish me. Who wants to be punished? But do you see how you're, you're, not, you're not getting the gospel? You're not understanding what these passages in 1 John are saying. Perfect love casts out fear. You don't have to run from God. You can run toward God with your tail wagging, reaching out to him, praying to him, praising him, asking him for what 
you desire. Reading his word, drawing close, walking with him, pursuing him. That's what Christians do because of the salvation that's offered for us on Judgment Day. Well, there's one other thing to talk about, and that's this, that you can have confidence on the Day of Judgment. So there's a natural fear about the Day of Judgment. There's salvation offered because of what Jesus has done. And all of that means that it's possible that you can face God on the last day, not with timidity or fear, but in confidence. And so look at this in verse 17, where John says exactly this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So that's the overall context here. It's the confidence that we can have facing the day of judgment. But look what he goes on to say. Why can we have confidence? And he says it, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now that's an odd phrase, (laughs) easy to overlook. What does he mean here? The reason we can have confidence on the day of judgment is because as he is, so also are we in the world. I think what he's saying is, as he is, as Jesus is, so are we. As Jesus is in his holiness and perfection, so are we. As God regards Jesus in the world, that's how God regards us in the world. (laughs) Not because we're righteous, not because we're good, not because we've been as good as Jesus, no, but when you trust in Jesus, you're placed in union with Christ, which means his righteousness belongs to you. And that's what John is saying here. This is the way God looks at the person trusting in Jesus. It's as if we have done everything that Jesus did. I mean, do you think Jesus, if he were to stand before the Father on the day of judgment, that he'd have any concerns about passing the test? (laughs) Of course not. And what John is saying is, well, you ought to have the exact same confidence facing God as Jesus has facing the Father because his righteousness is yours. But that brings up another question, though, and it's this. How do you know you're a Christian? That this is the promise to those who trust in Christ, but Many of us might have this question, well, but, but how do I know I really belong to Christ? How do I know I'm a Christian? And of course, that's been the main point that John has been trying to get across to us throughout this whole book. That's why this sermon series is called That You May Know. John wants to give us assurance. And if you notice the very start of the passage, verse 13, by this we know. So this is what John wants to impress upon us, the kind of an assurance that we can have so that we can know we can have confidence on the day of judgment. So how do we know this? Well, there are certain kind of tests that John lays down here for us. And the first one is this. We see it in verse 13. One of the ways you know that you're a Christian is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Notice the Trinitarian language here. Verse 14, we have seen and testified the Father has sent the Son. End of verse 13, he's given us his Spirit. Father sends the Son to die, and then the Spirit comes, and one of the Spirit's job is to bring assurance to our hearts, to testify to us that, yes, indeed, we do belong to God. We are saved. We are Christians. This is one of the chief jobs of the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit turns our heart toward Jesus so that we see Jesus as wonderful. I mean, if you're a Christian and you see Jesus as desirable and your Savior, there's one basic reason why that's happened. The Holy Spirit of the living God has been at work in your life. Romans 8, Paul says this, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's one of the primary tasks of the Holy Spirit, to give you assurance that you belong to him. Second test that we see here, confession of Jesus, verse 15. Look at what it says in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So there's this phrase, God abides in him and he in God. That's just another way of saying you're a Christian. You belong to God. God lives in you and you belong to him. Well, who does that? It's the one who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, who speaks it out. Now, this isn't just like a magic formula, like all you got to say is, you know, Jesus is my Savior, like abracadabra, and that just makes you a Christian. That's not what this means. But what it does mean is that whatever is in your heart sincerely is eventually going to come out through the confession of your mouth. And those who confess, those who are willing to say to others, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yes, Jesus is my Savior. I believe in him. I live for him. There's assurance in just hearing yourself say that. And this is what John is talking about. This is how we know the person who confesses. This is one of the benefits, by the way, of becoming a member of a church. Is you can stand before a congregation and proclaim, yes, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus is my Savior, and I want to live for him. And you see that happen here regularly. That's making a confession, a public confession, so the people can hear. That's another way that you can have assurance. Have you confessed Jesus out loud the last thing that we see here, and, and there are other tests, but this is what we find here in this passage. Love for others. And this is how the passage concludes in verses 20 and 21. There are three times in the book of John where John calls people liars. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, The person who says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, that person's a liar. Chapter 2, verse 23, the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ, John says that person is a liar. And now here in verse 20, look what he says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Anybody who says, I'm a Christian, I love God, I belong to him, but in your heart you're harboring bitterness and hatred against your brother, and notice the word brother, that means your attitude toward other Christians. I mean, certainly as Christians, we're called to love all people, but what John has in mind is love for brothers and sisters in Christ. What John is saying is that the person who hates other people in the church, if that person claims to be a Christian, that person is a liar. You know, it, it's just sometimes it's, it's easy to say these things, you know. Yeah, 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 I, I've accepted Je Jesus as my Savior. Yeah. I mean, I remember I did that 20 years ago. But, like, that's the entire extent of that person's Christian life. 
That, that, that person has no connection with the church. That person's never spoken about his or her faith to anybody. And what John would say is, you know, I, I don't think just uttering the magic words is quite enough. The person who says, I love God, but hates his brother is a liar. Now, does this mean that we never have tension with others in the church? No. Does this mean that we're best friends with everybody in the church? No. But, but it does mean when we feel that bitterness and hatred creeping up in our hearts toward our brothers and sisters, we take care of it. We deal with it. We take steps to be reconciled. We do what we can. We can't always be reconciled to everybody, but we do what we can. We don't allow our hearts to fill up with hatred. A good, good example um, is a, a movie that um, I saw years ago. It's called The Straight Story. And actually, it's a, a, a true story about uh, an elderly man, <clears throat> 73 years old, um, had suffered a number of different um, health issues, so was kind of immobile. He had been estranged from his brother for 10 years, and he heard that his brother had a heart attack, and so um, he decided that he would go to see his brother. Uh, but the problem was, because of his health issues and because he was nearly blind, he couldn't drive and he had nobody to take him. And so he had to find a way to get from uh, a town in Iowa to a town in Wisconsin to, to see his estranged brother. He had no other way to do it. So what he did is he got on his riding lawnmower and rode it from a city in Iowa to Wisconsin to see his brother. And... Um, Again, it's based on a true story, but this quote's from the movie, so I don't know if the guy actually said this, but, but in the movie it says, the guy says, my brother and I said some unforgivable things the last time we met, but I'm trying to put that behind me. And this trip is a hard swallow of my pride. I just hope I'm not too late. A brother's a brother. A brother's a brother. Now, he's talking about a biological brother, of course. John's talking about spiritual brothers and sisters. A brother's a brother. A sister's a sister. These are people for whom Jesus has laid down his life. How can you hate someone whom Jesus loves? How can you do that? This man was like, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm not going to live with this. I, I'm going to do what I can to be reconciled. What did God do to be reconciled to you? He went a lot farther than Iowa to Wisconsin. He left the throne room of heaven for you and came down and died for you, out of love for you. And what John is saying here in this passage is, this is the commandment we have. Whoever loves God must love his brother, must love his brother. So, friends... Is there some reconciliation that you need to pursue in the church? I'm not saying if you're not reconciled to everybody, it means you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. I don't think John is saying that. But he is saying that when we think about whether we're a Christian, there are some questions that we need to ask ourselves. We need to look to the Holy Spirit. We need to confess Jesus as Savior, and we need to do what we can to be reconciled to others. This is what Christians do. Not to get God to love us, but because... He first loved us. That's what the passage says. He first loved us.
So let's, let's arise. Let's shake off our guilty fears. Ben, you can come forward. We're going to shake off our guilty fears as we reflect on the goodness of God's love to us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are committed to making things right in the world in the day of judgment, and we thank you that in Jesus we have the assurance of escaping your condemnation. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.